Welcome in to the Duck Territory Podcast. I'm Matt Kramer. Scopel is across the way. Hello, hello. Uh, we waited to do this on a Tuesday because we normally do it on a Monday, but they moved the Civil War to a Friday-Monday deal instead of a Friday-Sunday, and so we wanted to make sure that we talked about Oregon women's basketball on this podcast. Uh, so it's now Tuesday morning. Um, rough night, or I guess rough couple days for just Oregon athletics in and around the general vicinity of Corvallis, well, particularly Gill College. I was going to say, I feel for Matt. I, I went up to I went up to the men's game on Saturday. Matt went to two games in three days and, <laughs> and left with two losses and a lot of long hours, and I think feeling really not too happy about his uh, his short term existence. <laughs> um, but absolutely, I think a, a frustrating couple days. I mean, Oregon, uh, you know, uh, on the men's side, had dominated that rivalry for a really long time. On the women's side, Oregon State had dominated that rivalry for a really long time, and it felt like this was going to be Oregon's year to break through on the women's side, and Ruthie Hubert goes down, and things don't really play out the way you would have liked, and Oregon ends up losing to Oregon State. That ends their possibility of a perfect 18-0 and uh, conference record. So, yeah, not not ideal. Not not great, Bob. I think not gonna, great. We're going to start at a different spot. I yeah, different. There's so much to talk about. I almost yeah. just jumped right into that. <laughs> yeah, well, we... We will discuss both the men and the women's Civil War uh, opportunities that they had, games that they lost. Um, Oregon did also win on Friday night in the Civil yep. War, so we'll talk about that as well uh, and kind of where things go from there. We'll talk about Rufi Hebert's injury and kind of what we know as of Monday morning or Monday evening. Um, we'll also go into a little bit of Oregon softball. Uh, second straight week where we're going heavy on women's sports, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and then, first and foremost, we're going to talk about Jim Levitt. And we did not do a podcast when this news broke. We waited a couple days to do it, and here we are. Uh, Oregon has moved on. If you've lived under a rock, uh, we reported, we were first to report that Oregon was going in a different direction with Jim Levitt. Uh, Levitt was going in a different direction with Oregon. Um, and then the next day, the school announced that the, the two sides were mutually parting of ways. And, that, Eric, I think it's safe to say, though, that as official as they made it, saying mutually parting of ways, this was more Oregon saying, hey, this isn't a good fit, and we need to go somewhere in a different direction. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think you can tell based upon the on-the-field successes, or I would say lack of failures, I don't think the defense was a blunder. This was not an entirely performance-based decision. I think it's safe to say. The last time we saw the Oregon defense, they held Michigan State to six points, no touchdowns, looked really good doing it. The time before that against Oregon State, another really strong defensive effort. Um, even against going back a game before that, Arizona State. Three straight games to finish the season, strong defensive efforts, yep. no question about that. Um, statistically, you look back on the season and you go, oh, maybe it wasn't as good of a year because the numbers actually kind of tailed off a little bit from Levitt's first season. But absolutely, this feels like a something wasn't working. There was some lack of cohesion between Levitt and the rest of the staff, or Levitt and particular parts of the rest of the staff, and that it really wasn't going to be a situation where year three was tenable, that, that doing a third year of it was... Uh, probably not going to be the right choice. And so it comes at a weird time. I think usually you would expect these moves to be completed um, maybe in January, maybe even in December. Yeah. Uh, but, and I think some people are probably going, is this a recruiting-based thing? Not not at all that we know of because Jim Levitt really wasn't that big of a factor recruiting this last year. Yeah. And it's not like they kept him around past signing periods because they didn't want anyone to decommit and go to a different yeah. school. There's none of that. He, he, there's, there's none of that. None of that. He was literally not the primary recruiter for anyone they signed, and maybe the secondary for 
a couple Isaac, guys. Isaac Townsend, because he's a kid out of Colorado, and then a couple of the inside linebacker guys. But um, ultimately, it'll be, I think, very interesting to see what plays out. You, uh, Matt, also reported that Keith Hayward is the likely replacement. Yeah. I think that's worth talking about as well, because I think a lot of pressure now is placed on his shoulders, because like we said... I don't think there was a growing sense from Oregon fans, at least from my perspective, that, oh, Jim Levitt, as a defensive coordinator, solely as the defensive coach, needed to be fired, that he his performance was lacking and that he needed to be moved. In fact, it's probably more of the offensive coordinator on the offensive side with Marcus Arroyo that people were pushing for in the offseason. So now I think there's going to be a little bit of pressure on Keith Hayward this first season because uh, I don't think people were going, we got to get rid of Jim Levitt. They're kind of right. going, now. is this the right move? Yeah, we expect Keith Hayward to be promoted to full-time defensive coordinator. We also expect uh, Joe Salavea to stay in his current capacity as co-defensive coordinator, associate head coach. Uh, the press release said that they're going to do a national search and look, that that's going to happen no matter what. Um, that's more there just to make sure that you know they make sure that that someone out there is interested, you know, in Oregon, and you know, maybe some crazy scenario plays out where. Uh, you know, some you know, high profile names are even escaping me right now. Um, but some crazy deal where you, you find some defense coordinator you had no envisions of ever being a player for. Right. Uh, and he steps forward and says, Hey, I want, I want to come here. Uh, you know, that's why you do the national search just to double check. But we expect that Keith Hayward will be the defense coordinator. And you're right. You know, there's going to be some pressure on Mario and there's going to be some pressure on Hayward if this is what we expect to happen. Um, and it comes to fruition because, or, or really whoever becomes yeah. the defensive coordinator, because the first chance that there is uh, a sign of things going backwards or things getting worse, there will be some kind of backlash within the Oregon fan base. It's just, it's fair or not, it's just the way that things are going to play out. And so it's going to be, you know, how bad of a, of a step back is that going to, is that going to be? Because look, the reality is, there will be a game on the 2019 football season where the defense does not play very well. It may cost them a game. It may not cost them a game. But there will be a game. And there will there there will probably be two or three games. It's just the nature of the beast. You're, you're working with humans, and we're not perfect. Oh, we are? We're not. Uh, and then on top of that, it's uh, college athletes. You know, you're dealing with guys that are 18 to 23, 22 years old. And, you know, they're not professionals yet. Some of them will be. Some of them won't be. Uh, and so you're not going to play the perfect game. The defense will have bad games, and it's just going to be now, how bad does it get? Because the reality is, if it is Hayward, that you've got a defensive coordinator now who has no experience doing a defense coordinator, you know, being a defense coordinator. And I'm a firm believer in, the, in that you, know, you don't have to have past history in that position to be good at that job, but when... Next year, there is a lot on the line for this program because they've recruited really well. Uh, they have a lot of substance in the recruiting world right now. Uh, there's a lot of hype around this program. They've got so many guys back. And if they fall on their face as a program, and when many expect them to be a dark horse for the college football playoff, and they win nine games, you know, there's going to be a lot of pressure on this staff for, you know, why did you make this change when you had a proven commodity for a guy that wasn't, you know, proven in a year where there was so much at stake. You know, and I wonder if some of the reservations from the fan base, and again, I'm kind of putting words in their mouth, will be 
this feels a little bit similar to the Helfrich Aliotti thing yeah. from a while ago where Helfrich and Aliotti worked as coordinators together. There was a coaching change. One of them was selected. They worked together for a year. Things didn't work out. The experienced veteran coordinator retired or steps to the side. And then they replaced him with somebody who doesn't, who'd been on the staff for a while, but yep. did not have any uh, defensive coordinating experience. That was Don Pelham in that case. Obviously, Don Pelham was a defensive coordinator when they played for a national championship game. Some success there, but I think overall people would probably say that wasn't the best defensive coordinator Oregon yeah. has had and probably the best stretch of defense Oregon has had. So I think there's going to be some, oh, hopefully this isn't just a Pelham situation again, but I would, I would say go in with an open mind if you're an Oregon fan because Keith Hayward has proven that he's an, an, a very, very adept recruiter. Um, he's proven. I mean, he did a really good job developing a guy like Ugo Amadi. I was going to say he just done a good job with his, his position group with Ugo Amadi. I remember, he came over from corner, and yeah, within Javon a year and Holland. a half, he was a great player. Javon Holland and Nick Pickett, I think, both developed pretty quickly and, and at a high level. So, um, I, I think there's promise there, and he's a young coach that I think will be attractive for coaching jobs down the line. I think he felt like he kind of want to lock him in and, and keep him here for the long haul. So, but like we've said, there's. No proven commodity. He's a good defensive coordinator. Time and time again throughout college football, you see guys that are great assistant position coaches who are given coordinating jobs and can go one of either way. It can either work out really, really well or it can work out really, really poorly. So this is another case of, of where it's there is definitely some mystery to yeah. whether or not this is going to work. I think people would probably feel slightly better if they were handing the job from Jim Levitt to somebody else who at least had a couple of years, a little bit of experience as a coordinator. And you want to find another positive in this is, like you said, that Jim Levitt had no real ties to recruiting at Oregon the last season or so. I mean, we 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 didn't see him go into a home at all. I mean, he was as college coaches are as Mario and Hayward and Salavea and Arroyo and you know the rest of the, the staff is literally literally flying across the country, drive you know going from Florida to Oregon, Florida to California, Tennessee to to Texas, in 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 the Northeast to the you know, Northwest. Uh, they're, they're flying all over the country. Then there's Jim Levitt, who's literally in a car, apparently, driving from, like, Texas to Iowa to Nebraska to Kansas to uh, Missouri and then to the Carolinas and to the Virginias to recruit junior college guys. Like, just obscure places driving, right. you know, like, that just didn't – it was very evident that they were not using him in the recruiting world. Um, and so – the positive spin to this or outlook is that you can go out and Hayward is hands down one of the best recruiters in the Pac-12. Yeah, ha- hands, absolutely. Hands down. I mean, that's definitive. Um, and you can make a case that he's one of the best recruiters in the country. Yeah. And now you've got a guy that's you know done really well coaching at his position group, uh, had a, his hands involved in the, def- the defensive game planning for the Red Box Bowl against Michigan State. And I think it's no question that was probably one of the best defensive performances We've seen in a while, uh, and, and so you've got a guy that's got some history, and you got a guy that's developed his position group, a really avid recruiter, kind of leading the charge at, at the defensive side. That's where things go, and we have to say we are speculating here that you know we expect Hayward to become the head, defense coordinator. Correct. We've reported that, yeah. uh, but the follow the trickle down effect is all speculation here. But if it is Hayward and they promote that, they then can go out and find another you know avid recruiter. You know, some some guy that can you know become uh, uh, another key cog to your recruiting machine, and your program has now added another asset that can bring in a lot of talented players, we which should, Levitt wasn't doing. 
we should mention here, because it just dawned on me that there's been also a wide receiver coach hiring sure. and a grad transfer receiver. I don't know how long we're going to go into this, but we should probably briefly mention that uh, Oregon has, I think, officially now announced Javon, I'm going to... Javon Buchnight. 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 Um, to coach the wide receivers. He was the Texas Tech wide receivers coach for like two and a half months. Yep. <laughs> Previously with Utah State. Um, somebody that comes in here, uh, you know, with a fair amount of, I think, experience and a fair amount of coaching past just his wide receiver coach. He was a Blitz position. Golf Award finalist in 2005 at As, Wyoming. I was a wide receiver. He was a, a, a really good football player, but he's also somebody who's been like the passing game coordinator yep. at Utah State. He's not just somebody who comes in here. Um, with, with strictly wide receiver coach uh, background. I think that's an interesting move. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out. He replaces Michael Johnson, um, who went who went to Mississippi State for the same position earlier this offseason. And then right around that time, Jawan Johnson, wide receiver out of Penn State, grad transfer announces he will be joining Oregon for his senior season. And that's a significant addition. Yeah. Um, I know yesterday on the site we did a, a DT roundtable where we each picked an offensive and a defensive player who would be our all-pack 12 first team, a guy who could make that award. Right. And Kevin picked Juwan Johnson as his pick as as the guy on the offensive side. And I think that might be maybe a little bit of a stretch in my mind, but he's certainly a guy who's capable of coming in and being Oregon's go-to wide receiver, the top passing option. Um, and that's very significant in my mind, given the fact that Dylan Mitchell is no longer with the team. Uh, they also announced uh, Ken Wilson, the linebackers coach. Right. Mario sure. noted that uh, he's a guy that could coach inside or out for Oregon. Um, so that kind of gives them some flexibility with who they replaced Jim Levitt with. Right. Um, and then they also announced Kenny Sanders, the defense, the recruiting director uh, for Oregon. He replaces Stephen Field, uh, who left for Louisville and then proceeded to take a Miami job because he became uh, tight ends coach instead of recruiting coordinator. Uh, kind of similar, kind of up and leaving like Boop Knight did with, with Texas Tech. Um, I, I like all three hires. Yep. Um, Sanders had had – uh, hand involved in Penn State signing three straight top 15 recruiting classes. Um, I think that's pretty impressive. Uh, he's going to, you know, has NFL ties as well. He spent time working for the Baltimore Ravens, uh, so that helps Oregon. Boop Knight is a guy that, you know, like you said, he's a proven track record of, of developing guys at a lower level at the receiver position and getting them into the NFL. Now you give him the machine that Oregon is uh, and the athletes that they can accumulate for him to, to develop, you could see some pretty big results pretty quickly. Uh, Ken Wilson, Washington State's always had really good linebackers. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think the hire makes a lot of sense. Um, it continues the the rating of the Palouse. And three, straight year, <laughs> three straight years, Oregon has hired a coach from Washington. Four, actually, it's four. four. David Yost. Yeah, about that, if right? we count David Yost as four straight years that Oregon has raided into the Palouse. Uh, and left away with a coach. And maybe, finally, they'll be able to beat Washington. Yes. <laughs> the irony is that they've taken all their coaches and haven't been able to win any of the game. <laughs> I think that speaks volumes about Mike Leach. Yes. Um, Juwan Wilson, like you said, is a big get as well. So, lots going on in, in the football world. Uh, junior day is quickly approaching. It's crazy. Which is just mind-blowing. The spring football starts in two and a half weeks. Yep. Spring football is almost here. And on top of that, um, Oregon football is continuing to have recruits. They have a guy right now. On campus, as we're doing this podcast, he's been here for two days. Uh, a top offensive player in the country um, from the southeast as well. So uh, they've had guys on campus. They will continue to have guys on campus. Recruiting is continuing to go really well for the Ducks. Uh, they have two verbal commitments. It wouldn't surprise me if here in about two months we look at things and they probably have 
four or six total verbal yeah, commitments. After the spring game, they could get up to six or eight, yeah. So you know, we'll, we'll get ready for gearing up for our spring coverage probably early next week. Uh, we're gonna we're, we're finalizing kind of our plans of what we're going to do for spring football, but uh, we the discussion never stops. Uh, and you can go over to DuckTerritory.com and talk about that at, uh, with us about Oregon football at, more at length. Um, but we're going to move over now to uh, let's let's start with the men. They go to Corvallis Saturday night, 7:30. They fall 72 to 57. Um, it's kind of to the point now, Eric, where I just wonder if you know they've got six games left, two at home, four on the road. The schedule is not against is not with them. They, it's against them, working against them. Um, there's still two games out of second place, but they're still like two games out of tenth place yeah. uh, in the conference. Um, so things could you know skew one way or the other really quickly here. Um, I just don't think I'm starting to wonder: Are they ever going to figure things out? We're midway through February now. The season is two thirds over, uh, almost past a quarter over, really, or you know, three quarters over. And I I now wonder and truly believing they're probably just not going to figure things out this season. It's just such a I don't it's a weird year. This was probably to me outside of the Colorado game the most disappointing because and probably even more disappointing overall honestly in the Colorado game just because this is a game where Oregon wins they're going to be they could have been what in third place after yeah. the weekend and yet, alone third and, and yet they lose and they didn't really even put up not that I don't want to say they put up a fight cause I don't know if this, I actually don't know if this was entirely effort related I think this might have been just execution execution. Uh, maybe focus related to something that Paul White said after the game, but there's an opportunity here. Oregon had come in winning four or five games. You talked about if they would figure it out or not. It felt like they'd sort of kind of pieced some stuff together. should also mention the schedule was about as easy of a stretch as it was going to get. The four or five wins they had were Washington State at home at Utah, which is an impressive win, but then against Cal and Stanford at home. Neither of those teams have looked very good this season. So kind of hard to gauge, but this was sort of, I guess, I think a dose of reality for what this team is, and, and I, I think Oregon State's pretty good, yeah. better than Oregon probably, not from a town perspective. I wouldn't say Oregon State's pretty good. I I, I mean, in, relative to the conference. Relative but, to the but, conference. But, it, you know, I was going to say, most years this is not a great Oregon State team, but that probably just speaks to the way this conference is playing right now in that Oregon State is now, I believe, in sole possession of second place, yeah. and yet I watched them and go a couple years ago, this is like maybe the fifth or sixth, seventh best team in the Pac-12. Um, but yeah, I, I think you look at the schedule going on here and it, it's going to be, this might be the year where they don't finish 500 or better in conference. It really might. I mean, they're six and six right now. Four out of the six are on the road. Washington State's giving people some challenges. USC and UCLA are, who knows what, do you what know? the heck they are. Yeah. Arizona State, Arizona feel the same way. Uh, I mean, really, this feels like Oregon could go five and one, or they could go two and four. I really, it, it, it's hard to grasp kind of what to expect. We do know they haven't been very good on the road, and so four games on the road is, is a tough break for them. But ultimately, I don't know what what to make of this season. I think you just kind of go. They lost bowl early in the season. That sort of changed everything, and they tried as best as they could to recover. Had some glimpses of, hey, this team can be okay. Lost some games they probably should have won early, and and now we're looking up, and this could be Dan Altman's worst conference season since his first year. You look at what happened Saturday night at Washington State, at Washington State, at Oregon State, and Peyton Pritchard, Kenny Wooten, uh, Will Richardson combined to score ten points uh, between the three of them, and they shot just three of eight from the field. Um, knowing Oregon's personnel, one Peyton Pritchard has to shoot more than four times. Yes. 
uh, and Kenny Wooten and Will Richardson, um, they also need to shoot more than twice a piece. Um, I think it was a, a very disservice to this team um, in not finding them ways to score. They have to be able to score because the reality is this. Lewis King and Paul White are solid players. Um, but this team is not good enough where you can just lean on two guys no. and and win on the road. They're, they're, that's just matter of fact. That, that, that can't happen. Um, you did get a good contribution from Miles Norris. He had seven points and three blocks on three or four shooting in seven minutes. Five or 17 minutes. He had five rebounds. Um, you know, but he's, his play is inconsistent. Um, and I don't think you can, you can count on him to provide that type of production every night yet. He could get there, um, sometime next season probably, but right now he's just not consistent enough. And this is where we have, you know, look, Victor Bailey, you have a mean, Two other guards on Oregon's team that just are so hot and cold. You have to have your three starters and Peyton Pritchard, Kenny Wooten, and Will Richardson give you more than what they've got and uh, on Saturday night against Oregon State. And that's going to be the question for the rest of the year is I think Lewis King and Paul White have kind of stabilized. They've kind of you know solidified, hey, these are our two guys, go-to guys. Uh, but you need Wooten, you need Pritchard, you need Richardson. One of those three – Every night needs to step up to be that third wheel. I just think some of it comes down to you don't have anybody in the backcourt that you can consistently go to for baskets. Right. I mean, you, you, you ran down there between Bailey, Amin, Pritchard, and Richardson. You have no idea what you're getting in yeah. night in and night out. I mean, Pritchard, we should mention Pritchard, the two games against the Bay Area schools, has scored 20 points a game. And yeah. then he comes out here, he plays 38 minutes and takes four shots. Something doesn't come to you. That's just kind of weird. I mean, 38 minutes and four shots for a guy who had just scored 20. It'd be one thing if we knew all he had to do was pass. But he plays almost the full game and only gets four shots up. Three of them are threes, and I think two of them are like desperation, end of shot clock, end of the half kind of things. So uh, that that is weird, and I, I just don't think – you're at the point of the season now where I think you kind of know where – you know you know the personnel. You, you know your teammates. You, you, can't, you can't use the excuse anymore of – Oh, we're just trying to figure everything out. You should kind of have an idea of roles, and yet I don't. I still don't think those are clear. You, you, we, we, I think you're, you're right. I think King and White are pretty clearly the, the two top offensive weapons. But on the perimeter, you just have no idea night in and night out yeah. who's going to take shots, who's going to be able to score. Will, will Richardson will have nights where he'll look awesome going to the rim and he'll score you know 16, 18 points, or have a game where he shoots twice, turns it over four times, and has one assist. And and that's just sort of the most frustrating part is that you've we've seen games where every single one of those guards I mentioned has taken a game over. Victor yeah. Bailey's had some big game shooting. Ehab Aminas had some games where he's been just crazy defensively, forced a bunch of steals, had a bunch of points. Pritchard's had a couple like that, and so has Will Richardson. But then they also could all four have a game like they did against Oregon State. And yeah. ultimately, if one or two of those guys had had one of those good games, they might have won that game. So, uh, I, I, yeah, I agree. Just a weird situation. I, I don't know what kind of expectations you really want to put in this team going down the stretch uh, in, in the conference and into the Pac-12 tournament. It feels... Like you'd be a little bit rash, or to, to say this team is, has a good chance of, of, of making a run at the Pac-12 championship in terms of uh, getting a bid. I just I just feel like I haven't seen enough to, to really even feel like that's feasible at this point. Yeah, that was my kind of biggest takeaway out of Gil Coliseum was look. The fact of the matter is they're not going to win the conference. Um, I think it's becoming cl- more clear uh, that they're probably not going to get a top four seed in the conference. Agree. Um, you know, I think this weekend against on the road at USC on Thursday at UCLA uh, on Saturday night, I think that will have a really large impact um, 
on Oregon's chances because if they emerge one and one out of that, then they're kind of just where they are right now. Um, still in the hunt, but work to do and no progress. Basically. You know, they, they won't make any progress. If they lose both of those games, I would argue it probably knocks them out. Oh, yeah. Um, of, of being able to go in and, and getting a top four seed. And now if they win both games, you know, yeah, they, they will have a chance, you know, to, to do it. Because right now Oregon State's ahead of them. They're not going to catch them because they don't have the tiebreaker. Uh, the only way that, that they can catch OSU is if, if OSU goes three and three or worse and Oregon goes four and two. Um, and, and that's really the only way, or no, not even that. That doesn't even do it yet, you know. So, uh, or, or there's, Oregon's in a tough spot, and it's can you can you try and get to that four seed? Can you try and get to that three seed and, and get there? Um, I don't feel confident in saying that. And then it gets to well, can they string four straight games together to get to the NCAA tournament? They can't string two straight games yeah, together. I mean, yeah, I have no idea from night to night. So yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's a it's a really tough spot. Shifting over to the women's side now, the women go to Corvette on Friday night at home, sellout crowd, awesome environment. Um, they win that game. Uh, trying to look at 77 to 68. Uh, they basically led throughout the entire game except for about a two or three minute stretch, I think in the late in the third quarter or early in the fourth when the Beavers kind of came back, took a lead. Um, they never really pulled away. Um, I think OSU did a really good job of defending Oregon, uh, and their offense and their shooting. Wasn't particularly the best shooting performance for Oregon in that game. Uh, and they, they, they did walk away with the win and then, uh, they climbed to number two in the rankings, which were released Monday morning, and then Monday night they went to Corvallis and they lost 67 to 62. Really poor shooting performance. Uh, Kelly Graves afterwards said, you know, when the best shooting team in the country shoots 35% from the field, yeah, you're gonna lose. Uh, I think he was pretty frustrated at, at you know, the, the quality of look that they had on multiple shots that just didn't go in. Uh, and then they, they pressed quite a bit as well in terms of shot selection and, and taking some rushed shots or bad shots. Um, but the, the issue, the bigger issue is that Oregon saw star junior center Ruthie Hebert leave the game in the second quarter. She played 13 minutes with some kind of a knee injury. She had eight points. She had four rebounds. She shot three of seven from the field. Uh, she was at that time playing well for Oregon and uh, the Ducks weren't leading, but, you know, she was a game changer for them. She had three offensive, she had three total rebounds, uh, excuse me, she had three offensive rebounds, and she had one defensive rebound. So she was, you know, she was active on the, on the floor. She left with an awkward knee injury, uh, don't really know what's going on. All Kelly Graves would say is, don't know, doesn't look good, later said, we'll pray, and how, uh, uh how they will, you know, move on without, with the Hebert, if she can't go moving forward, uh, it's just—it seems like every time Oregon gets really close, no matter what sport it is, I was going to say, no matter what sport, somebody suffers a knee injury, and, and of course, I don't—we don't know the significance. This could be less than we. It looked like it might have been. She, she might, did. She, she might play this week. Yeah, she I didn't mean, play in the second half, but she did go through a very light workout in the halftime when the probably team the only, which is a thing to maybe be a little optimistic of yeah. possibly maybe this is something where she's out a couple weeks rather than the whole season but what I was going to get at was yeah Chris Boucher goes down with an ACL injury right before the Pac-12 or at, in the Pac-12 tournament down in Vegas a couple of years ago Oregon felt like a team that could win the national championship it still made the final Marcus four Marcus Mario gets Marcus hurt in Mariota, 2013 Dennis Dixon uh, both those guys have knee injuries that kind of derail possible national championship contenders and now 
possibly Ruthie Hebert, who, well, she's not the star player. She probably kind of is similar to, the, to probably the Chris Boucher thing in terms of she's one of the top players, but not the top player on a team, but a very critical piece here because if you follow this team this year, you know depth is not a strong suit here, and they're basically play seven players. And if she goes out now for an extended period of time, that means that, A, they're going to play six players, basically, the majority of the minutes, or they'll put in Lydia Giomi, 6'6", I think she's a sophomore, who has had moments where she's looked okay, but had moments where she looks a little bit starstruck, and, and maybe she has to play a little bit more. So, yeah, They started Audie Gildon, the senior. Uh, she's 6'1", and... Um, in place of Ruthie in the second, second half. half. Yeah. Uh, Kelly Graves afterwards said he trusts these players. They're really good. He mentioned that if you followed this team at all during Audie Gildon's career, her best basketball comes in February and comes in March. I don't really know her, her game blogs show us, but I do remember, you know, she's had big games. Um, but she's not Ruthie Hebert. No. And as good as she's going to play or can play, she, you know, it's, it's going to take a Herculean effort to get – uh, her to, to play at the level that Ruthie did. And on top of that, she's three inches shorter than, than Ruthie is. So Oregon's going to have a, a you know, it, it's going to be, can, can you withstand this injury, um, if, if it's not serious and get her back in time to be able to still compete for a national championship? Because look, the reality is this, and I, I wrote this on the site and, uh, some people were kind of taken back by it, but look, they still have the firepower, you know, to do what they want to do in terms of reaching their goals. And that's winning the conference, winning the conference tournament, and making a run to the Final Four and having a chance to win it all. Because the reality is this. Sabrina Inescu is probably the best player in the country. Uh, and on top of that, you have two really, really good shooters in Satu Sabli and Aaron Bowley. Um, Sabli, in particular, might be the hardest player to guard uh, in college basketball on the women's side just because she's 6'4", can handle the ball and shoot threes and you know, create for herself and then Novak, she can post you up and, and whatnot. Um, so you still have three really, really good scores um, on this team. It's just now roles are going to have to be a little bit different and you're going to have to ask Bully and Sabali to guard in the interior when one of those guys did not have to do that on the floor at all times. I think in the glasses half full perspective is you're right. Oregon probably should and will probably still win the conference outright. Yeah. The two game lead with four to play. Um, they, if they basically, if they win their two games at home this weekend against UCL and USC, they'll be at least guaranteed a share of the Pac 12 championship. Um, and then they go onto the road and if they beat Arizona or Arizona State, basically they have to win three out of four games and they clinch the league. Yeah. So that's still, I think, quite likely that that'll happen. Um, Oregon has been dominating teams. They beat these LA schools by, I think, 20 and 40 points down. Um, in LA, they beat Arizona State by about 40 up here. So these are teams that they've had a lot of success with before, and, um, you'd imagine they can continue to have that success. So if there's a possibility, again, glass half full here, that Heber's injury is, let's say it's a three week injury. You don't play, I mean. You could, you can still get through yeah. here and probably still be a one or a two seed playing in Portland and play your first four games. The season's not over yeah. if she has a short term injury. The season might not be over even if she has, a long-term injury, it's just going to be really hard to win the championship, national championship, which is the ultimate goal. But if, if, if she's out three weeks, you can probably get by here. You, 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 you say I think you can win two or three of your remaining regular season games, and then you go in the conference tournament. I don't think they have to win that many games there to, to really to make much of a noise in terms of the NCAA tournament seating. I think they're still going to be a one or a two, possibly a three seed if they really fall apart here, but they're still going to be a one or a two seed regardless of how things play out. So don't feel like, oh, no, Hebert's out for a couple weeks. This totally screws the whole thing up. If it's only a short-term injury, 
it probably doesn't really matter that much in the grand scheme of things. If I'm Kelly Graves and then the trainers come to me and tell me, hey, Ruthie can play on Friday, you know, you're, you're probably going to have to have her on a minutes restriction just because we don't want to put too much stress on it. But be, but we can put her out there. We can play her if you want to play her. If I'm Kelly Graves, I don't play her until the NCAA tournament. I'm with you. I, I, I don't play her on Friday against UCLA. I don't play her Sunday against USC. Um, I, I certainly don't play her against the Arizona schools the following week. Maybe you don't even play her in the first round of the Pac-12 tournament, second round of the Pac-12 tournament. Maybe you throw her in there for a couple minutes to start getting her, her conditioning in and getting used to right. playing back. But you, you, you throw this out. You throw two weeks out and say, Ruthie, just get healthy. Get your, get your knee back to where it needs to be for the stretch run. Get, keep your conditioning down. Keep, do your drills and practice, but we're not going to play you in games because we can, we can withstand uh, a couple games without you and get, you know, get the job done without you. We've got the talent. We've got the firepower to do that. Get yourself ready for, for the NCAA tournament. That's, that's kind of best case scenario. Right. Um, you hope and pray, like Kelly Craig said, that this isn't serious just because, you know, she's a, a really good person. She's a really good student. She's a really good player on a really fun team. And I, I would hate to not have an opportunity to see what this Oregon basketball team is like when they're operating at, at, at full strength. You know, and one of the things here, I was preparing to write a story this morning if Oregon State yeah. had lost, about how, if Oregon had won, if this, this could have, would have been on pace to be the second most dominant Pac-12 women's basketball team this century. Um, and still, remarkably, through 14 games, even with the five-point loss, they have the second-best margin of victory um, over the first 14 games in the conference uh, since 2000. So just a little point of positivity to end our women's basketball coverage here, uh, just that I know last night was really rough, but uh, this remains a very, very impressive season, and I don't think you can – hopefully you don't come away going, oh, the season's over now, we lost Oregon State. I think there's a lot of positive things, obviously, that's already taken place and, and possibly to come. Uh, shifting gears real quick before we wrap things up here on the podcast, Oregon softball, uh, they had another interesting week, we'll call it that. Um, they played – uh, and the St. Pete Clearwater Elite Invitational, they played against three top 25 teams, starting with a top 10 game uh, against LSU, and they won that one 8-5. to five. Uh, at one point, they were leading, I think, eight to four. Uh, they were up four to one, and then they, and then LSU caught up. Correct. A bit. Uh, and then later that day against James Madison, who was at the time ranked 23rd in the country, uh, they fell. They got run ruled. Oregon did, and they lost nine to one. Saturday morning, they had a perfect game. Uh, not perfect game, but a complete game. No hit shutout uh, from Jordan Dale. Uh, they won that one two zero. And then Saturday afternoon, they closed up shop with a 12-3 loss in five innings to number, at the time, number 18, Kentucky. Um, I think we said before the pod, before the tournament started for Oregon softball that best-case scenario, realistically, was probably they go 2-2, two and two, and that's exactly what they did. And I don't even think we'd have to play back the tape, but I don't think even in our best-case scenario, beating LSU was really something that was on the radio. No, we, we were think, thinking maybe James Madison. Yeah, thinking they could get one off James Madison. Maybe maybe they get one off of Florida Atlantic, and then they hope, like, heck, they can beat Kentucky, and, and, and that, you know, that was kind of the best case. I think we all felt like Florida Atlantic felt like the, win, the most winnable game, and then if they can just get one of these against the ranked teams, that'd be great, and start off awesome. I mean, beating LSU... Big deal. We've just been kicking the crap out of everybody. Which, by the way, later that day, they went and played Texas, where Mike White is at and four <laughs> right. former Oregon players are at, and they 
blew out Texas. Yeah, I think it was 12 to 3 or 12 to 1 or something in that game. So kind of a little bit of irony there. So Oregon beat LSU, who then beat Texas, who, so it's this old big vicious circle. But anyway, I think you come away feeling like that's pretty good. Like I, I think in a weekend where you get run rolled twice, to feel pretty good about the weekend, that's kind of a weird weekend, but that's kind of how I came away looking at it, going like, we thought 2-2 two and two was about best case scenario, they come away 2-2, two and two. we didn't think they'd beat LSU, they did, that's awesome, uh, two losses by run rule I think is concerning, and we should probably talk about some of that here for a second, but Oregon is 7-2, and two. they jumped up to, I believe, 17th in the coaches poll, uh, they're ranked, they're considered still with all of the offseason adversity and strange stuff that took place, a team that is right there in the country. People think they're among the best teams in the country still. Um, and, uh, again, uh, I think you have to feel pretty good. I'm sure Missy Lombardi and her staff would love to be 9-0, and but all things considered, I, I'm sure they're coming home this weekend um, uh, feeling pretty good about kind of where things stand. I mean, it, it's gotten off to about as good of a start in my mind uh, as it could have given what's taken place over the last six months. Now they, they go into a week... Uh, where they play the Mary Downer Classic. It's, it's a, I think, six game stretch over about a four day period. Correct. correct. Uh, they start Thursday, uh, 10 a.m. against New Mexico State and Cathedral City, California, and then they play another game, uh, two and a half hours later, uh, against Bethune Cookman, and then Friday afternoon they play Army, and that's the only day that they play, and then Saturday, uh, Texas A&M, a morning game, and then two and a half hours later again they play Texas Tech, and then they wrap things up Sunday morning. Uh, with a 9 a.m. game against UC Santa Barbara. This is where um, th- we should also note that Oregon's moved up in the rankings to 17th yep. in both major polls for college softball. And this is a chance where Oregon can collect, you know, six wins. I, I, I think it's – if you your best-case scenario here is you go 6-0 and or 5-1 or and um, and you want to avoid a 3-3. Three and three. Right, and, and Texas Tech is ranked. They just moved. They're, I think they're a ten and zero on the season. So that's the one ranked team. That's a Saturday at twelve thirty game. So if there's a game this weekend you want to check out. It might be that one. Um, and again, I think this weekend's success is going to come down to kind of Maddie McGrandel. We talked about this yeah. a little bit. I don't want to go too try too deep into this, but she struggled this year, and she's the second pitcher. We, you know, we lost three top arms to transfers uh, this offseason in, in Elish, uh Balance and uh, Weiss, uh, Kleist. The names just. Uh, Escaping me there, but Kleist. And they replaced it with Jordan Dale and Maddie McGrandle. And Dale, no hitter over the weekend. She's 5-0 to start the season, has pretty good stats. McGrandle struggled a little bit. So I think that's where the challenges are this weekend is how do you strategize kind of who pitches which game, et cetera, et cetera. And can you find a, a formula here where McGrandle can take some steps of an improvement, gain some confidence, hopefully, um, because she's had just a rough start to the season. And, and it's important, college softball, you really do need two quality pitchers. Right now it feels like Oregon has one. And then McGrandel feels kind of like a question mark. It's going to be interesting to see play out for Oregon softball. I'm, I'm still really intrigued. I'm still really excited to see how things play out. And before you know it, there's going to be a home series for Oregon fans to see it themselves. Because uh, next week they go to Fullerton to play in the Judy Graham Classic. Uh, some big teams in that one. Florida, Cal State Fullerton, Auburn, Michigan, Tennessee. You know, really good test there. And then two weeks later, when, right when spring football starts, uh, Eric will be going from football oh, to softball to football to softball, softball to football. Oh, and then let's not forget about the women's basketball call tournament that's going on. That's going to be a really fun weekend. <laughs> uh, Oregon, Oregon will play their first home game in two weeks, March 8th. Uh, as crazy as that sounds. I guess it's like three weeks almost. Um, yeah, but it's close. Mar- March 8th against Oklahoma State, three game series, 6 p.m. T- uh, start time, uh, on Friday night, and then a 12th 
p.m. start on Saturday and a 12 uh, 2 p.m. start on Sunday, the 9th of, of uh, March, before Pac-12 play begins uh, March 15th uh, down in the desert in Tucson. So you'll have an opportunity, and before you know it, you know, you've got Washington coming to town, Stanford uh, on the road, uh, they've got uh, California, a couple games against Portland State, they've got Oregon State coming in, uh, Arizona State's playing out, and that's where we should end things here. Is <laughs> yeah. There's... A key player on this team who could help the team that we're still waiting on to become eligible. Yeah, Terry McGowan was a transfer from Arizona State, and uh, Arizona State is dragging its heels a little bit. And I'm going to softball media availability in an hour here, so this news may change. Maybe we'll all arrive and find out that she's been cleared. But from everything we've heard, it sounds like basically McGowan wants to play, Oregon wants her to play, the NCAA doesn't really mind that much, but Arizona State is basically saying, hey, you enrolled here, you started your, your career here, you should, you're not eligible to play immediately. And so that's the situation that they're dealing with. I think the fact that it's going from Pac-12 school to Pac-12 school also impacts it. But um, that would be a significant addition. Uh, she was a top 25 recruit this last recruiting class. She would be a big part of the team this year and certainly going forward would potentially and more than likely fill in at catcher from just from the beginning, even though we've seen good stuff from Shea Bowden and Abel Utec there over the first two weekends. So um, certainly – something to keep an eye on, and uh, probably a little bit of, like, I'm sure Missy Lombardi's going, is there anything that can go right for me? Can I just get one thing to go right? Can we just get this girl in? Because it would be a big uh, addition for a team that's, again, playing a lot better than I think a lot of people expected they would. That's going to do it for Eric Scopo and myself, Matt Prame, here on the Duck Territory Podcast. Thanks for listening. Uh, subscribe to us on iTunes. Give us a review. Share it with a friend. Uh, and more importantly, go to duckterritory.com. Read some of our work. Read some of Eric's work. Read some of my work. Read Kevin Wade's work. Uh, we've got a couple of interns on the site doing some great work as well. So uh, lots still going on on DuckTerritory.com and even may, I guess even a bigger push. If you feel so inclined, give us a try. We, we have a free trial on the site. Uh, you get seven days free, um, and then after that you get billed. So there's really no harm in trying us out, and there's always something that we're talking about, whether it's Oregon football, recruiting, basketball for the men and women, softball, uh, baseball's into gear now as well. So Lots going on on DuckTerritory.com, and we strongly suggest that you uh, check us out. I think we're a little biased, so uh, <laughs> we'll talk to you tomorrow. We'll talk to you next week, and until then, thanks for listening. Adios.